0: Hey team, Oliver here, and excited about what we have in the pipe for you for 2021. Today, I interview Panith Maruva, Associate at Trucks VC about their latest report, The Three axes of Micromobility, Supply Chains, Distribution and Maintenance, about the often unseen world of building, moving, selling and supporting micromobility once it is in the hands of consumers. This is a topic that I haven't done much of in dedicated coverage on the podcast today, so it's a great conversation full of nitty-gritty details. I really enjoyed this, and I hope you do too. In terms of news, following Mega Rounds by Tia and Voy, Estonian company Bolt has raised $182 million in a deal led by D1 Capital Ventures. The latest round will fund the startups efforts to become the largest scooter operator in Europe in 2021, which we covered on a recent podcast with the head of Micromobility. This is on top of the $100 million raise in May. The European mobility plays are where the action seems to be, and it is very exciting times. On the other side of the Atlantic, scooter startup Superpedestrian has raised $60 million from City Impact Fund, Our Crowd, Winthrop Square Capital, and others investors were wooed by the company's vehicle intelligence system which gives its link scooters one of the lowest vehicle loss rates of any operator and will be used to support the rollout of their service which we've covered on this podcast with both their head of policy paul steely white and their founder asaf biderman you may recall that they recently won the seattle tender which definitely put them on the map as one of the leading second generation players this will be a long game for these scooter companies, and it is exciting to see where they've got to. Speaking of long games, Beijing-based Mobike officially halted operations of its mobile app at the end of 2020. Its remaining bikes will be rebranded by the Chinese on-demand giant Meituan, owner of Mobike since 2018. It's an anticlimactic end for a company that five years ago popularized dockless GPS-connected bikes rented through apps on a global scale. Its cash burning pursuit of market share and uncertain business models left it financially hobbled by 2017, and along with its early rival Ofo, also a former unicorn, Mobike was overtaken by a new generation of Chinese bike share players like DidiBike and HelloBike, which prioritized sustainable growth with significant backing from the tech industry. This industry can be brutal, and I for one plan to be here to help cover it. A quick heads up to also make sure that you have your ticket for Micromobility World, our first all digital event running from the 27th to the 29th. We have some of the biggest names in the world of owned and shared micromobility, including the CEO of Lime, disruption innovation experts, including Gene Munster and Benedict Evans, leaders in urban design like Janit Sadiq Khan, and investing gurus from the industry coming together to talk about how to supercharge the micromobility revolution. Tickets are available on micromobility.io and include the VIP option for curated community participation and exclusive workshops for industry participants. If you're in the industry, this is the best opportunity you'll have to meet and connect with others in your space, given all the constraints that we have around COVID at the moment. Register at micromobility.io. It is going to be awesome. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. And with that, here's Puneet. All right, and welcome back to Micro Mobility. We have with us today Puneet Maruva. How are you going today, Puneet?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for uh, for having
0: me on the podcast. It's a it's a joy. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, I, I'm just I'm really excited because we're kind of going to get into some nitty gritty stuff today. Oftentimes, I think we kind of skip over the top of it mainly because we didn't have that um, that level of expertise. Uh, and the technical aspects, um, and so I'm very excited to to share uh, a bit more about what you've been what you've been doing. Um, so I thought maybe probably the easiest place. Why don't we start off with, you know, we've had Riley on in the past, uh, almost two years ago now, um, from Trucks. If you can just take us through what Trucks is and the thesis, and then the portfolio companies you've had, and then just your background and how you got how you got to be there and stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm an associate at Trucks. Um, I joined about two years ago. Um, Trucks, as a reminder, it's an early stage venture firm, and we invest in the future of transportation. And more specifically, our thesis is to support startups making transportation safer, cleaner, or more accessible. And so based on that criteria, we've invested in everything from autonomy, logistics, aviation, micro-ability, and and even space. Um, And so within the micro-ability sector, I'd say we've made kind of for immediately relevant investments. Uh, we've invested in skip, in drop, uh, refraction, and cord. Uh, that's more on the infrastructure side. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and then a little bit on my background. Um, I come from a technical background, studied electrical engineering and CS at MIT. Um, and before joining trucks, I, I worked at BMW and Uber developing kind of safety-related software. Um, you know, for me, transportation has always been the defining industry of our generation. and Trucks seemed like a great opportunity for me to think about these problems at a high level and, you know, really vision and philosophize about what transportation looks like. Um, and so that's uh, that's how we're here. Yeah. Awesome.
0: <laughs> no, nice, I didn't realize you'd been at Uber at, uh, at some point as well. That's uh, interesting. What years were you there?
1: Uh, so it was just for a, a summer. And so I was there in 2019, I want to say. Oh, cool. Maybe nice. 2018.
0: Yeah. Yep yeah yeah, very interesting nice um and and uh yeah for, for anybody who doesn't uh who it doesn't already not already signed up uh riley uh the the uh, journal partner for trucks writes a fantastic new Zealand called the future of transportation uh, you can go sign up uh, i'll put a link into the the episode um it's one of the best weekly emails that i get um Riley's very good at kind of spotting all the interesting stuff going on, uh, in the, in the auto space, uh, obviously a bit of micro mobility, but in the kind of wider mobility space as well. Um, cool. Okay. Excellent. Well, do you want to take us through what the research was and, and, and kind of why you got into doing what you did?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, one of my roles at Trucks is to conduct these, you know, bi-quarterly deep dives or research briefs into, into trends that we think are critical to the future of transportation. And, and as far as this project specifically goes, there are really two kind of key trends that, that prompted the research. Uh, the first, we saw that you know since the 2018, 2019 scooter wars, there was a bit of kind of jadedness about micro-mobility and we still strongly believe there was a potential. And, and obviously in 2020 with COVID, there's been a massive kind of renewed interest in the space. And so really the, the point of this research was to flesh out our, our vision our thinking and our thesis on micro-mobility. And as we did the research, we we really realized that you can kind of think about ability along three core axes. You have supply chain, distribution, and maintenance or after sales. And the, the thesis that we came away with from our research was that we believe the most compelling company in ability will be the one that vertically integrates along all three of those axes. You know, I think initially we focused specifically on the vehicle tech and the manufacturing and things like that. Um, Obviously, I think given my engineering background, that's just kind of my bias going into this. But through the research, we we quickly realized that while that is an important lever, um, as you think about this industry, the distribution and maintenance and the opportunities that come forth from integrating the three together are also just as important. Awesome.
0: So... um so it was a deep dive in supply chains, but then it kind of went out wider into what is the overall ownership experience like of these vehicles and like, where exactly. are the opportunities that lie? Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. Um, and um, what, so, so when
1: you say you did this research, what was the sort of source material that you used to be able to do that? Yeah, um, a huge resource was definitely this podcast. <laughs> Spent a good amount of time listening to at least you know, 30, 40 podcasts, um, getting some of this research. Um, and then obviously given the age of the industry, a lot of first person research. Um, so we interviewed a lot of people within our network, different micro-mobility founders, engineers, and thought leaders.
0: Nice. Excellent. Um, and, and yeah, I guess uh, take me through the key findings. So w- maybe we can break it down by sort of like components, distribution, and maintenance as you sort of like broke those three mm-hmm. out. So what is um, what are you seeing in, in the space of components um, in terms of, you know, you, you mentioned before that you were going sort of like... Um, vertical versus off the shelf and like doing vertically integrated stuff versus off the shelf. Just take me through that and there may be some some companies that you think are maybe be doing that well in this industry at the moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when we were looking into the supply chains, you know, first, we really had to figure out what that supply chain even looks like. There's not a lot of documentation on that. Um, and as we kind of broke down how you put together a micro mobility vehicle, we realized that building a, a micro mobility vehicle looks a lot like building a consumer electronics product. Right, so you have these brands or these operators and they take care of the, the FATP to, to borrow from Consumer Electronics. So final assembly, so what's it, FATP? testing, and packaging. Uh, final assembly, testing, and packaging. Okay, um, cool. And Great. so, you know, the brands take care of that and then they either source or they build in-house five core primitives. You have the, the powertrain, the battery, um, the UI, the chassis and kind of your like, compute connectivity unit. Mm -hmm. Um, and And this is specifically
0: for like e-bikes and scooters right so are you talking but does this also extend up to like mopeds and electric motorbikes and other things as well
1: yes I mean obviously the the definition for micro mobility kind of warrants a discussion of its own but we're we're kind of looking at the SAE definition right so these are mainly e-bikes e-scooters and electric skateboards um, motorized urban and under 500 pounds 500 pounds or f- yeah right because that's the SAE definition yeah. right yeah
0: okay catch you. okay cool great that's where we are um, yeah so you're talking about the, the you, this is sort of five core primitives which is the, the yeah all of those parts that you mentioned which I'm not going to label off again but in terms of uh, w- maybe we break those down actually so do you want to talk about voters okay. first and just sort of what you're seeing in that space and then we can go into the others as well
1: Yeah, of course. Um, So the powertrain, you know, really, that's been the the automotive supply chains in into the Microbility space. And so you see a lot of the automotive tier ones coming in and trying to build out the powertrains because really that's where the the road grade safety critical design experience from an auto tier one comes into play. And so the key players here are Bosch and then, you know, as announced as recently as yesterday, uh, Valio is entering the space as well, building out powertrains. Um, these are likely more on the higher end of the spectrum um, yep. in terms of costs. And then you have um, Buffong, which is kind of on the more bang for your buck type uh, type option as well. Um, and I think, you know, really looking into the powertrains is what helped us realize that um, control over firmware and specifically control over firmware for the powertrain is a really, really critical aspect of how you control the ride dynamics and experience. Because in a vehicle like a scooter or an e-bike, even tuning the smallest parameters like the acceleration curve of a motor has a huge impact on what that ride feels like. And so, you know, while we think, and that's really where the thesis around vertically integrating and building these things yourself came about, because if I'm a brand building an e-bike, I could use one of these three off the shelf powertrain components, but the firmware kind of customizability there is relatively limited. And so for me to really own that ride dynamics, those ride dynamics as much as possible, it's pretty important for me to, to either build that myself or if an eventually a powertrain player comes out that builds a fully customizable powertrain, use something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's, um, so that's for sort of a mid drive unit. But if you say, for example, cause I know I'm looking at you on a, on a, on a video screen and I can see in the background, you've got a Vanmoof, uh, S3. Um, and I know for a lot of that, like if you look at the rad power bikes and that sort of stuff, like a lot of them are coming with hub, Based motors does that change the dynamic at all in terms of versus kind of having a mid-drive unit in the in the middle of the bike
1: yeah i mean there's obviously a lot of pros and cons to mid-drive or hub motors but i think fundamentally the the key players and and the importance of the firmware is is more or less the same right and um
0: like in your research, did you find anything that sort of indicated that hey, we're going to be going completely? Do you think we'll end up going mostly to mid drive over time? Do you think that, that sort of that that's where the market's going to go, or do you think that there'll continue to be a a mixture of mid drive and hub motor stuff at least in the e bike
1: space? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I think that's an interesting question, and to be honest, I don't know if we'll we'll start leaning towards one or the other. Um, as I think about the kind of segmentation of, of e-bikes and micro-mobility vehicles in general, I think it'll really parallel in many ways how um, seg- how the automotive industry is segmented, right? So you have some vehicles that are four-wheel drive, some that are front wheels, some that are back wheel. And so I think, you know, based on price point, use case, um, a whole, as- like, you know, series of aspects or reasonings, I think you'll, you'll see different types of drives. Awesome. And then, um, you know, th- th- like, If you're looking at it from an overall
0: arc are things getting easier or harder to develop like if you're saying okay we want to do vertical integration and that's kind of where the market's going versus um you know like versus we're gonna it's becoming in some ways easier to build modular do you think that there's, you know, overall, what is that doing to vehicle development timelines? Or are we kind of at this, we're just getting more and more vertically integrated, but it's taking a longer time to develop, or we're getting faster and the market is overall kind of adapting to having a faster time to market, but, um, you know, more modular kind of componentry.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, I think that as a lot of these suppliers start to mature and understand what a safety critical subcomponent for these vehicles looks like, it is definitely getting easier to um, to build out some of these vehicles. And even if you are vertically integrating, I think a lot of the kind of the industry know-how that the auto industry has around how do you do validation testing, how do you do dyno testing, and things like that, um, you know, that's quickly kind of becoming kind of commonplace or expected at least when you when you design some of these vehicles. And so um, I think on that side of things, it's definitely becoming a little bit easier to design. Now, in terms of product development cycles, you know, it's it's really mandated by the changing kind of um, model refresh cycles, right, or the, the changing new model cadence. And so on the one extreme, you have your municipal docked bike share vehicles, and typically their refresh cycles are quite long. And so the product development cycle thus has the, the freedom to be a lot longer as well. And you can really focus on building a very robust, reliable, sturdy bike, and just kind of constantly update the software some of the more high churn products like brake pads and then on the other end for owned vehicles um, the owned micro mobility vehicles that user experience or the user expectation is starting to look more and more like that of a consumer electronics product right and so in the same way that you might replace your iphone or your ipad before you really need a new iphone or ipad um, but rather you just want a new one because a new model is out there I think mm-hmm. that behavior is starting to permeate into micro-ability on the own side as well. Um, mm-hmm. And so therefore, the refresh cycles are shortening and then the product development timelines that these brands have are shortening as well. Um, and as you like, continue to see that like shortening product development cycle, that also has a huge impact on whether you vertically integrate or you rely on third-party supply chains, right? So if you're relying on third-party supply chains, Really, there's three supply chains available to you within MicroAbility. You could rely on the auto supply chain, which has like a five to 10 year development cycle. And so in most cases is too slow, unless it's a product like the powertrain, which doesn't need to be updated frequently. You then have the bike, your traditional bike supply chain. And for, for most cases, that's fine, because a lot of what you get from the bike supply chain are like commodity components like a chassis or a brake pad that have been engineered for decades Right. And so but even then, the lead times that they have of six to 12 months by a lot of the newer, more innovative brands like Vanmoof are deemed too long. And so the bike supply chain is also like starting to wane in its responsibility or role. And then finally, you have the consumer electronics supply chain. And because they're already used to this, you know, one to three year new model cadence, they have great retooling abilities and great manufacturing scale. They're really the best suited to this new future of micro mobility where you need to put out new vehicles every year, or every two or three years. And, you know, you could either rely on these consumer electronics supply chains where they have the speed and they have kind of that manufacturing scale, but don't necessarily have the vehicle manufacturing or vehicle design experience, or you could pull all of that in house and that vertical integration, even though that's costly early on, it lets you design, have a lot lower design and development latency, it lets you kind of incorporate all the specs and designs that you need, and it lets you bring forth the vehicle design experience that, for example, a Foxconn might not have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. Um, speaking of which, th- so you mentioned that people
0: might get to a cadence similar to what you might have with a phone, which is you'd upgrade because the kind of the vehicle is new and it's interesting. What's the resale market looking like? And I'm aware that kind of gets us into the question of distribution and how do we think about distribution. We can kind of go back to that, but I just I'm, I'm very curious about what does the secondhand market look like, and and is there anything that emergent in this space that you think is
1: potentially interesting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that that's a great question, and we've been we've been trying to collect data on on resale markets, but you know it's it's very difficult because most resale right now happens on like Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. Um, you know, There's obviously a huge opportunity for resale. Like you mentioned, the, the, the amount of time that people have vehicles is shortening. And so there's more and more used vehicles on the market. And new vehicles have such long wait times that people are willing to buy old vehicles for a very high price. right? And additionally, people want better financing options. And that's really um, hingent on resale value and residual value. And those data models don't exist because we don't have a credible resale marketplace, right? And I think the reason we don't have any reputable marketplaces right now for resale is because, first of all, the core primitives of these bikes, namely the battery and the powertrain are very expensive to replace. And the manufacturer warranties are usually pretty poorly run. And so if I'm a startup trying to build a resale marketplace, it's very expensive for me to be able to refurbish those bikes, right? And so I think, some of the things that we as an industry need to improve the resale market. Number one is we need some sort of independent third party evaluator, right? Like Mm -hmm. someone like a Carfax that can come in and and evaluate the price for these used bikes and price their sub components and really kind of help set up that secondary market. Um, and if that doesn't happen, you really have three options, right? And they all truly kind of revolve around uh, brands and operators and OEMs thinking about making the the supply chain and the economy of e-bikes more circular right yes. so if i'm a bosch right it's it's kind of up to up to me as being one of the biggest powertrain suppliers in the world to kind of buy back some of those old e-bikes and fix or refurbish those powertrains or at least help evaluate those powertrains so that way you can put them back out in the market um, or if i'm a van Moof, again you know providing trade-in options and things like that just so that you can take those vehicles off the market, fix them, and, and put them back out. Um, we, we've well, seen a couple of- Well, certainly like, that's where
0: moves going, and certainly when I've talked mm-hmm. to Taco and had him on the podcast, that's what, um, you know, part of the reason I think that they've designed the bike like they have or well, at least the S3 and the X3. And then also as well, that they're moving towards a subscription-based model is because they want to be able to have that, right? They want to have a bike that's fixable. It's in, They can keep it inside of their ecosystem and they can continue to charge whatever they charge for it, you know, $100 a month or whatever it is. Um, yeah, exactly. Th- that would stack up. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, the, you know, when when we see the overall arc of um, things, I do wonder a little bit about whether or not the subscription size, the scrip- the subscription model actually really will become the dominant model where where people kind of go there's like in some ways you know leasing versus buying a normal car and all that sort of stuff but mm-hmm. especially if you're tying it to things like maintenance and uh resale value etc cetera, etc cetera, um it makes a lot more sense that we end up with more
1: subscription models in this space totally agree
0: mm. um so yeah in terms of distribution what's the status quo and what's and what's interesting in terms of what you yeah learned?
1: um you know i think you can kind of break that down in own versus shared Um, On the own side right now, you have kind of this fragmented network of mom and pop bike shops, or you have the big box retailers and and the problem with the bike shops is they don't really have any economies of scale and, you know, really um, they're kind of prisoners to the the powertrains that they sell, right? It's hard for them to sell other powertrains or service other powertrains. And then on for big box retailers, they don't really have any incentive to make a great after sales experience. And so this is why you see even in europe i mean this is a stat that horace loves to use right like in a in a market with such a mature bike culture decathlon is still the biggest bike oem there and um, Decathlon's like the walmart
0: of uh, of europe just for, for exactly for folks who might not know what decathlon is yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. and, and not unfortunately the, not the, because not the olympic race <laughs>
1: <laughs> um yeah and unfortunately because they own distribution they end up beating out a lot of the better designed bikes. And this is why you have this like clutter of white labeled bikes that under the hood are really all the same kind of conglomerate of off the shelf components. So I think something that's interesting on the own side, obviously, you're seeing a lot of newer brands experiment with direct to consumer and brand stores. Um, This gives them a great ownership um, of the user experience and great knowledge of the pain points. Um, But it's hard for them to scale that that's an expensive model. And so um, we think that there's an opportunity here for Kind of third parties that almost act like auto dealerships that can kind of wrap up sale, resale, maintenance, financing, and across multiple different brands um, to provide an alternative um, for for some of these brands, these DTC brands. Mm. Um, and then on the shared side, obviously, right now the the go-to distribution model is single trip shared, so docked or dockless, yep. and you know they have a variety of different. <laughs> discussions around the unit economics there but i think the the subscription and bikes as a service model there is really interesting um and i think you know obviously a big part of why that's interesting is because it takes away a lot of the opex from the the fleet operator they don't have to worry about charging they don't have to worry about rebalancing or or a lot of theft protection and things like that Mm -hmm. Um, and so i think that's that's an interesting direction for those companies to go as well and already you've seen like the likes of bird experiment with that um and i think another oh this is the model, like you get to rent it on a weekly
0: basis and they drop it up exactly you know, they give it to you for the week and yeah 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 mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and that was what i was gonna ask but i haven't seen that scale anywhere like it's sort of like oh it seems interesting and yet nobody's really doing it yet
1: mm-hmm. yeah and, and i think the the people that might be best positioned to launch the subscription service are the people that sold these vehicles under the own model, right? So yeah. your van moves, your rad powers, and ultimately for them, by launching these subscription fleets, right, it ends up being, you're able to kind of capitalize on the virtually free customer acquisition that Microbility provides, right? It lets you market, it lets you get deep understanding of the operational requirements of a specific market. And eventually you can kind of build out the infrastructure that both can share. And so this not only makes the user experience of someone that owns your vehicles a lot better and ties them into your ecosystem, but it also helps solve the unit economics on the subscription side, on the shared side. And so I think that ability to kind of have multiple like, use case or multiple distribution vehicles all kind of sharing the same infrastructure, it is a great kind of next step forward for a lot of these brands.
0: Yeah. Do um, you don't know one company I'm really excited about? It's Zumo. Uh, formerly Bolt Bikes with uh, Mina. We mm-hmm. had Mina on the podcast uh, a couple of episodes ago, but they're building the subscription e-bikes for couriers, but they have built that. They are probably the biggest subscription. In terms of, as I can see it, other than swap fiats, they're like the ones who are probably the most, um, like have really nailed a niche of doing like um, food delivery courier business. And mm-hmm. they just said, we are going to build e-bikes just for that. And they've, they've really nailed the niche. And they've got custom hardware in that space, and I can just see that going. Like he does, he says, "I don't want to go to I don't want to go to consumer. I think consumers are annoying," and I totally understand and like get why you wouldn't want to do that. But I just, you know, I I, 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 yeah, I'm really excited. I think it's going to be a really interesting time. Um, especially when you pair that with um, with maintenance. Speaking of maintenance, um, so servicing and 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 maintenance, like what have you fi- found in terms of what the owned experience is like at the moment? And then in the and, and and as we talk about sort of subscription and shared, where is that kind of? What are we finding as we kind of uh, the, the as as the market develops?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think just globally across both shared and owned, one of the big problems is. A lot of these vehicles are are designed to prevent maintenance as much as possible, right? So you're seeing thicker and heavier chassis and things like that. But I think the thing that these companies need to realize is ultimately maintenance needs to happen, right? Like Mm -hmm. no matter how robust the vehicle is, it will need to be fixed. And so you really need to focus on designing around making maintenance as easy and as quick as possible and reduce that OpEx as much as possible. Um, And then I think another couple of problems on the own side uh, number one, you know, the, the replacement parts, kind of logistics and supply chain is, is woeful, right? There's, mm. It's very difficult to find replacement parts and that ends up take, making maintenance take even longer. And then really the only infrastructure that consumers today have for maintenance is to go to bike shops. But bike shops either don't know how to service light electric vehicles, or they won't service a light electric vehicle that you didn't buy at their store. Yes. And so the, yeah. now you this have to, <laughs> yeah, you have to like watch YouTube videos and try to figure out how to how to fix a bike. When in most cases these are urban consumers that probably don't even have power tools at home, right? So it's I think there's just a, a just a huge lack of, of options. And you know I think where I hope maintenance infrastructure will go for micro mobility is, is pretty well kind of encapsulated by by two of the companies I find most compelling in micro mobility. Um, the first is super pedestrian, and really their kind of maintenance technology um, around the firmware level and the ability that it provides them to autonomously diagnose and maintain vehicles. That's right. something that I think all future vehicles need to start incorporating or thinking about. Um, and then, kind of on the more business modelish uh, side, um, I really like a lot of the the things that Van Move is doing. Right. Yep. So because Van Move has has vertically integrated their supply chain and they've designed these bikes to be modular and as easy to maintain as possible. Number one, it's very easy for their brand stores to maintain them. But number two, this also opens up tele right? And that's what their bike doctors do. Their bike doctors are basically a gig of um, a fleet of gig economy workers. Um, and what's astonishing is you can sign up to be a bike doctor to fix a Van Move bike and The only thing that you really need to do before you can start fixing a bike is take one one one-hour-long online class. It's it's that easy to learn how to fix these bikes. Really? Wow. Yeah. And on top of that, you know, in case they do encounter something that is too difficult to fix, um, because of how mature their kind of replacement parts supply chain is, you can simply take out the module with the faulty component, send it back to a manufacturing facility, and in the meantime, just put in a new module right? And so this is what makes maintenance so, so easy for them. And again, this is something that's impossible to do without kind of thinking about supply chain, maintenance, distribution, and integrating all of that together, because each step here kind of builds upon the other and makes the other stronger.
0: Yeah. I think also as well that they're, um, they're, fo- they're maniacal focus on net only having two, they've only got two bike models right and it's sort of you've got the x and the s3 and um you know it stops them from selling into a whole range of different other things but um uh it allows for them to do this aspect of um of um of, of servicing which i which is really very interesting i didn't realize it was only an hour to train them up one of the big things i've been having conversations with here and um uh with governments here and and uh and with other bike manufacturers has been how do we get e-bike Mechanics trained up, and then what are the certification specs around them? And and to your point, you know, there's a lot of mom and pop shops that, you know, oh, you didn't buy the bike here. I'm not willing to go look at it. And even then, when they do sell it, it's like it's hard to support some of the componentry and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it's amazing to me that Van Moof's got it down to an hour. That's going to make a really yeah. scalable aspect of their business. Um,
1: and and any- just to to add to that, you know, there's there's a couple of different companies that are, you know, providing maintenance in a van basically where if you have a problem with your e-bike they'll they'll come out to you and they'll help fix it again the problem here is where do you get the replacement parts and Mm -hmm. um, I think that's kind of the the critical component that they need to solve um, in addition to the training of e-bike mechanics and things like that because it's a it's great if a mechanic can come to your door but if they don't have the right components and now you have to wait a few months to fix your bike I mean before you know it, you go back to using your car just because it's a lot easier to get that maintained.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, super. Okay. So, uh, in your. In, in, you, so, you had in the, in the report that you sent through to me, you had to sort of like the. A, this is what the state of the industry is, and this is what we're seeing in terms of componentry, distribution, maintenance, etc. And then you talk through the future opportunities. And this is the part that I, this is, to be honest, as a sort of the investor side of me got really excited when I got to read <laughs> that and, and like, oh, yep. Yep, our thinking lines up that's nice um but you had you'd broken it down into design and tech consumer experience vehicle platforms and fleet level platforms so let's run through each of those so design and tech mm-hmm. and you 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 mentioned the toyota camry of micro um you know what what will that look like i, I you know uh, riley's famous for asking what does the ford f-150 of uh a micro mobility look like i think he's trying to go like more globally universal because the ford f-150 only sells in america when he's, is that why he's saying the toyota camry now <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you know i think really the that analogy is is to emphasize that you need a vehicle that is is cheap you need it to yeah. be very reliable and robust and you need to have the manufacturing kind of scale and maintenance scale that it's really easy to get a hold of one of those bikes and it's really easy to keep those bikes going right so mm-hmm. if you look at camrys today i mean most camrys are <laughs> like ten ten 10 plus years old like it's incredible how how well designed and how, how robust those those vehicles are. And I think that's really what we're looking for. Um, I, something that's just high quality, high utility, and has a, 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 just an endless... Yeah, um, kind of bulletproof. Kind of, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I can um, see
0: that... I, I, I'm curious if you think the Segway Max is that. Because to me, in the scooter game, that strikes me as being... Maybe it's not the... The, the toyota camry it feels to me like the nokia 3310 it's the sort of mm-hmm. it's before the smartphone it's before it gets all fancy and stuff but it's just like it's a it's a workhorse most people who ever ask me what sort of scooter they should buy i'm just like mate just go buy a Xiaomi 365 or a segway max it's just like
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know there's small problems yeah, with that. them about replacing the tires and stuff like that but you know if it, 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 it's otherwise very good for most people and light enough and safe enough and all that sort of thing
1: yeah, for sure. I mean, I think uh, those vehicles definitely got um, a bad kind of initial rep, and that, that was more so because they were being used for something they weren't designed to be used for, mm. right? And so I think on the own side, that's definitely a strong contender, um, especially as, as Xiaomi continues to build out kind of the ecosystem around it for maintenance and things like that, and continues to make it more robust. Um, you know, I think another kind of great example um, of some of the, the newer brands is, is Rad Power. Right. Rad Power is continuing to bring that price point down to where it's affordable for a lot of people to, to own a, um, a Rad Power e-bike. And just the kind of the number of different options you have in form factor with the Rad Power makes it such a great family bike that is robust. And you know, these are hefty bikes like you, you can feel that this is a robust bike that is not just going to break down on you. And even if it does, they provide a couple of different maintenance options as well. So I think of the newer brands, they're probably a good candidate as well. Mm, fantastic
0: um,
1: and then you also
0: had mentioned as well in terms of design and tech that they 're kind of going further up market so a five to twenty thousand dollar vehicle um, what you know what, what does that look like because I think charging five to twenty thousand dollars for a bike is a hard sell or for a scooter is a hard mm-hmm. sell. At least at this stage, maybe we'll start to see five or ten thousand dollar scooters if um, that you know the e-scooter uh, moto championships comes about. and You can get a scooter that goes <laughs> zero to one hundred and you know uh, three seconds or something like that. Com- completely preposterous in terms of performance, but um, yeah, yeah. Where, where, where are you seeing that kind of that higher end micro mobility going to be coming through? Like, what do you think yeah. it'll look like?
1: Um, you know, I think in terms of timing, it's it's definitely still a little bit early. Um, I think the the cultural shift towards using micro mobility for, for urban travel is hasn't happened enough yet, um, and I think a vehicle like this would get immediately priced out of the market if it came in today. Um, that being said, you know, and I think Oliver, you're the one that mentioned this to me when um, we were doing this research, but because micro mobility serves the most frequent and most most expensive trips, um, there is an opportunity to kind of build out a vehicle that can that can service those really effectively. And and I think the features that, that kind of vehicle needs to have um, to be able to warrant that level of price, those features need to start kind of replacing cars, right? This is not an an accessory or an appendage to your car. It's a a replacement. And so, you know, eliminating seasonality, safety features like ADAS or autonomy, um, maybe kind of premium like ride networks and ride services around um, around the vehicle, I think are, are an interesting touch as well. And to be honest, I'm not sure that the form factor for a five to fifteen k um, micro mobility vehicle is an e bike. You know, this might be one of those, you know, like pods uh, that we that we so often see in the mobility world, the like single seater pods that are kind of like mini cars. Um, that might be the form factor that ends up occupying this uh, this segment. Well,
0: uh, everybody, go check out www.nimbus like nimbus2000.green uh, that is one that I'm particularly excited about at the moment I think it's very interesting um, they are, yeah I'll link to them in the podcast as well um, but yeah they I, th- I, th- I agree with you I think that that's probably what we need to get to is like you need to have it covered and it needs to have some level of performance that allows you to it has to still kind of classify as micro mobility and be lightweight but I do think you're going to need to have basic Weather, weather protection and coverage mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing and some of, the, and some of those more premium features for sure. Um, excellent. Um, and then battery swaps as well. That, that was one of the other points that you'd uh, kind of pointed out in the future opportunities. Um, and obviously we, we know uh, from like GoGoro and TIA, um is now getting into uh, in Europe doing battery swaps. Um, so swap batteries, um, I know almost all the major uh, micromobility operators in the shared space are getting into swappable batteries as well. Um, what does, you know, who do you think will end up leading that space? Like, what will, what will that look like? And do you think we'll have interoperability across it? And if that's the case, then who will kind of like push that and make that the the, the, the business that works?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, you know, we, We've seen a couple of different ideas around battery swapping for micromobility. Um, we initially saw PushMe, which I think was actually the company acquired by Tier and is now mm-hmm. the basis of their battery swapping Um, kiosks Um, we recently saw another company called teleport trying to do something similar you know i think the big problem here is really about reaching an agreed-upon battery standard and having the market power to enforce that right as a third-party swapping network and especially as a startup it's very difficult for you to have that level of market power Um, and so and then on the other hand i'm not sure if a battery a, a fleet operator like a tier would be willing to open up their swapping network to other operators because that is kind of their differentiating factor. It's their ecosystem lock-in. And yes, that's important for consumers, but perhaps more importantly, that's their ecosystem lock-in with cities and municipalities, right? And that's what ensures that they continue to get those permits. And so I'm not sure that operators will start to, to open that up either. I think really the best position to build out a swapping network are either vehicle manufacturers that have a lot of market penetration, so like an Okai or a a Segway or someone like that, um, or Xiaomi, um, or the battery manufacturers, right? A lot of these brands, virtually every vehicle still outsources the cells, and Mm -hmm. they would also outsource the battery pack if buying an off-the-shelf battery pack were cheaper. And so because that, that kind of, you know, supply chain behavior is already standard, I wouldn't be surprised if it's the battery manufacturers that come in with um the market power to be able to set up a large swapping network at scale and mandate that a lot of their customers use that specific standard
0: that's a that i feel like when you talk about market power that would be a real like that's a real power move by them i just wonder if they'd be able to pull that off especially when you've got all these you've got effectively municipalities kind of listening to hopefully the scooter companies and that and that sort of setup Mm -hmm. and if a scooter company you know battery came in and came in and came in and said you know we've got these batteries that are available but you have to uh you know we want you to make it open so that everybody every every scooter operator in the city has to has to work on these batteries i think a lot of the scooter operators would really um, balk at that especially because there'd be everybody would have difference well it's still at the stage i guess there's probably like three major manufacturers but yeah cool interesting i mean i I don't know i'm just i um i don't Mm. have anything to say on that i just i
1: watch with interest to this space yeah i think think part of the other kind of interest why battery manufacturers might um, want to get into this is you know a lot of the promise behind swapping networks is also around kind of grid balancing and grid loads and things like that Mm -hmm. and obviously that is something that a battery manufacturer is is very interested in getting into because as we start to see more and more electric devices um, being used by people today, um, grids are woefully underprepared. And um, this is something that a a battery manufacturer probably sees as an opportunity. And so, you know, if they can work with cities to help them balance their grids, and on top of that, they set up the swapping network for uh, for micro-mobility, you know, that could be a a win-win for them. Fair enough. Cool. Um,
0: great. And then in terms of consumer experience, one of the points that I, I really loved in uh, in your research was this idea of next generation consumer brands. So can you talk me through why, you know, what do you think of the existing consumer brands and what are you seeing there? And then what are the, um, what do you think that that will imply about what, what might come next?
1: Yeah. So you know, I, I think some of the, the, the analogies that have been used through by various people that I've researched in you know, most existing brands today. They're kind of like the the Nokia's or the, the compacts or or the Nissan Leaps. These are generally, you know, minimum viable products in at the beginning of a nascent industry. And there's not a lot that kind of retains customers within that ecosystem. Right. And so it's for example, when people switch from Nokia's to smartphones, like there's really nothing holding them back uh, towards using a Nokia smartphone. And, and I think, as you see these new brands come into play, they need to realize that you know that after sales aspect is so important, and that's really what you know helps differentiate and helps kind of keep customers coming back to you um, and I think there's a couple of kind of parallel industries or analogs um, that might be a good kind of roadmap um, so one analog is your typical kind of d to c brand so think about Warby Parker, right mm-hmm. they have they, number one, have like perfected of the idea of how do you combine direct-to-consumers online and brand stores and all of that with logistics in order to make a really great consumer buying experience that also kind of incites the emotional attachment and pride and excitement when it comes to buying those products. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot for MicroAbility to learn from, from the likes of a Warby Parker. Um, and then I think there's a lot to be learned from some of the consumer electronics brands like Apple Right, because Apple is really, I think, the, the best example for, for a, a new e-bike manufacturer to follow. Um, number one, there's that branding and that emotional attachment. Yep. And it replicates that emotional attachment, which is so important for a vehicle. Uh, number two, it provides an end-to-end kind of vertically integrated user experience. So when you need maintenance, financing, insurance, all of that is provided um, under the Apple kind of branding and umbrella. Um, They have really great networks for their users, right, which kind of incentivize users to stay within their network, Um, and they have all of these kind of platforms, whether that be the App Store and iOS and things like that, that kind of not only bring in other third parties that further enrich the user experience, but they also continue to, to improve the product that you already own, right, and so I think... All of those things that Apple has set up is what continues to make such a great user experience and continues to you know convince people to spend thousands of dollars year over year on a new phone when the hardware is you know really more or less the same over the course of um, one year to the next, and it's really I think that user experience that continues to bring customers back
0: Yeah, the challenge with the Apple analogy is just that the that there's so much um, you know, because it's a computing platform in some ways you there's so much stuff that kind of like keeps you retained. Whereas I feel mm-hmm. like for a lot of these vehicles, there's you know, you kinda of make the purchase and at the moment that's kind of it. Like you, you might get a helmet or you might get some accessories and you might brand them similarly, but it's not it's not the same kind of hook. And I don't quite know how that will work. Um, but actually that does give us rise to the next part, which is you will talk about vehicle platforms, and this is obviously your Horace has this thesis that all of these are smartphones and wheels and eventually they'll become computing platforms. And I, I happen to disagree. I think that this will accrue on the smartphone and you might have an interface on the vehicle, but, but that it'll be kind of more car play rather than, um, iPhone necessarily. The vehicles themselves will end up like iPhones, but like, what are you seeing? You know, do you think that this, the computing will end up accruing on the, on the, on the vehicle? And then that might itself be part of the hook for keeping a consumer inside of the ecosystem over time, especially if you're doing like upgrades from one vehicle to the next, et cetera?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, I think I, I probably tend to agree with, with Horace in that a lot of the, the, this kind of platform accrues to the vehicle. And, and part of the reason I think it'll accrue, accrue to the vehicle is because um, we're starting to see a lot of vehicle manufacturers realize the importance of, of controlling the, the firmware on these vehicles. Right. at the end of the day uh, an e-bike or a scooter is an interface to the real world and the best way to optimize that interface you know all these other apps and things that might sit on top are exciting but it's really around optimizing that firmware that's what optimizes that interface and so it's hard for me to think about a future where you know maybe your your vehicle os just sits on on your iphone and you just dock that onto your bike simply because for that future to happen all of the vehicle firmware and all of the primitive firmware needs to operate on some agreed upon open standard, right, that the, the iPhone or whatever other personal computing device can connect to. And that level of like openness is is not something that I foresee. Um, so yeah, and and I think in terms of you know some of the ideas of of what can sit on top of a software platform for these vehicles, um, you know, there's number one, the the actual vehicle OS itself that controls the ride dynamics. But I think there's also a number of interesting third-party kind of apps that further enrich that user experience, right? So, for example, one of the um, the cool features about the Van Move it has like a in built-in display um, and incorporating things like map, maps or navigation, or for example, the bike also has a speaker, like incorporating the speaker and things like that, you know. It, and on top of that, there's also kind of third-party. Uh, quote unquote apps that aren't necessarily software apps, but services that sit around those bikes. So whether that be maintenance or charging or parking or whatever it might be that interfaces with the vehicle directly, mm-hmm. that all I think is, is too difficult to kind of replicate and deeply embed onto, onto a personal computing device as opposed to the vehicle itself.
0: Mm, interesting. When you're looking at it in terms of connectivity, is that is that something as well that you've you've kind of looked at and you think there's something interesting that comes through from micro mobility? and I re- reason I bring that up is it's like think about something like, We've had uh, Amir from Helium on, who's talked about, you know, the, the ability to connect to kind of a very low end, low bandwidth connectivity, that that's where micromobility is really interesting, because we'll be able to do a bunch of basic mm. diagnostics up, etc, and it's going to be low cost, versus 3G versus ex- existing connectivity, so you might end up with like new 5G deployments into vehicles like this, like, where do you, have you given any thought to what connectivity might look like on, the, on that spectrum, and what vehicles might take advantage of?
1: yeah um yeah as we continue to think about the importance of firmware and you know being able to monitor firmware level performance of your vehicle to diagnose it and think about predictive maintenance and things like that a lot of that is really you know critically hinging on connectivity right because as you are collecting all of this kind of diagnostic data um, you, you could compute that on the vehicle but that's when you start a lot of that on-vehicle compute is what starts to eat away the battery life, right? And so um, I think having kind of this cheap and accessible connectivity that's specifically designed for some of these low-level, um, you know, com- computation functions of, of these vehicles um, is is very, very promising. Um, and I think, you know, as you think about connectivity um, for, for these, like, low-level diagnostics, um, And specifically, you know, not only does that help the brands um, learn more about their firmware in real time and control that firmware in real time, but it also allows those brands to open that up to other third party apps, whether that be like fleet management software or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, charging software mapping, whatever it is, right? Like opening that up, that like opening up that data in real time to third parties is also what allows that user experience to continue to grow. and so. Providing connectivity for that level of data, I think, is, is really important. Um, I, I guess I, I'm not 100% familiar in, you know, what exactly is the battery consumption of of having a cellular um, device on your phone or sorry on your vehicle and having a SIM card and things like that versus using something like Helium. Mm. And so I'm not sure like what the the exact benefit is on in terms of performance, but you know, in terms of costs, especially for shared vehicles, I think that could be very, very useful.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great. And then in terms of uh, the final, so you had fleet-level platforms, and so can you just talk me through what you mean by fleet-level platforms and how and, and how you've been
1: seeing that as a future opportunity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, again, I think really what I mean by fleet-level platforms is micro-ability vehicles have, one of the great things about them is that they provide this virtually free customer acquisition because they're really fun to ride, right? And there's a lot of things that you can do to kind of capitalize on that for other potential use cases beyond just the, the utility of moving A to B, right? And I think one great fleet level use case is logistics. Uh, we, we talked about Sumo, but I think if you think about urban environments, MicroMobility has, has a great opportunity to, to help make urban logistics a lot faster and a lot cheaper. Um, And so Zumo is a is an obvious candidate leading that space another great candidate. There is is Amazon They're already experimenting with cargo bikes and things like that And I think as Amazon continues to you know, or if they ever kind of open up a a Consumer retail channel where they sell vehicles direct to consumers They get that opportunity to share infrastructure between consumer and commercial vehicles um, and really drive down costs and provide value-add-on services for, for consumer vehicles while doing something they already have to do for the commercial vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, as you think about other delivery fleets, I mean, for, if you look at a lot of the gig delivery companies like Uber Eats or DoorDash, a lot of those delivery drivers already use e-bikes, right? Um, and so, right now, they either buy their own or they use Zumo. Um, but I think as more and more brands start to open up subscription models, you'll start to see some of those vehicles creep in. Um, but eventually you have to realize that logistics is is, a, is a, an industry of razor, razor thin margins. Yep. And so, um, you know, having this kind of subscription bike that's meant for owned uses ends up, and using that for logistics delivery ends up eating away at your margin. And so we definitely think there's an opportunity for like a B2B, um, vehicle manufacturer that specifically handles logistics, right? So the micro-mobility equivalent of like a sprinter van or a transit van, yep. um, as well as the micro-mobility equivalent of like a, of a Ford F-150, as, as you've mentioned, Riley, Riley likes to say. Um, and then I think another fleet level kind of use cases around the mobility as a service platform. Yep. Um, and really the, the two core contenders there, I would say, are, um, are Apple, sorry, are Google or Uber. Um, yes. Google, you know, and this was, I think, mentioned in one of your guys' podcasts as well. Um, Google could use these vehicles as, as basically a physical version of ReCAPTCHA, right? Um, use that to collect mapping data um, and then in turn use that to launch their mobility as a service platform. And yep. the, Google Maps is already on everyone's phone. It already exposes transit options and transportation options and they have a payment platform. And it seems inevitable that that's the direction they go in. Um, I still Uber. find it completely um, almost maddening that um, nobody
0: has, uh, like Google and or Uber still don't combine all of these into one option. Like, it's not like you kind of go, you are here, you're trying to get to here. These are the options that are available and this is how much it's going to cost. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's that mobility service thing strikes me as being... I mean, especially with Uber, that's the one that's just really gets my goat. Because <laughs> they, 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 still, they still make you have to go and find the scooter rather than saying like, well, yeah, you could just walk three minutes down here to get this scooter, we'll reserve it for you right now and it'll take you to there. And then they can start doing things like dynamic pricing and their scooter options and all that sort of stuff relative mm-hmm. to the cost of the Uber. And then they can, I mean, it's all just like, struck me as like, this is where the world is going, but nobody's quite yeah, cracked that. this yet, you know? And I was talking Bolt mobility, two weeks ago, and this is old Taxify in Europe, but like, they position them next to each other. They also are only just now starting to get to the point where they've got Bolt, but they still aren't really doing any sort of price comparisons or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah. yeah no I know. mean,
1: I think the tough the tough sell with that is this kind of multimodal urban mobility future is still pretty pretty nascent, right? I mean, a lot of the, the, the cultural shift towards using micro-mobility for urban mobility is fairly recent. Um, Most people, when they think of multimodal urban mobility, still is kind of a combination of either driving to a a train stop and then taking the train or a bus or, you know, using Uber or ride ride hailing. Um, And so I think, you know, we're still kind of at the beginning of a lot of these mobility options, flushing out and more importantly, becoming connected and having kind of transparent pricing and transparent booking and things like that. Um, and now that we're starting to see that improve, and now that we're, we're even seeing public transit um, authorities start to improve that front of, of their service offerings as well, I think now is when you'll start to see, that's when you'll start to see, you know, more of these mobility-as-a-service platforms coming forward. Mm.
0: Super. Well, look, mate, we're almost at it hour, and I just want to say this has been... Um this has been fantastic. I mean, I think I love that. I love that there's a, to get to talk to somebody else about this. Obviously, I spend a lot of time thinking about this and where the future's going and, and what's it's doing. And, and, and I really like what trucks are trying to do in, in terms of investing in the future. And um, yeah, no, it's a it's a real pleasure to have a chance to kind of break these down with you and, and think, you know, get where your thinking's at as well. Um, if folks want to track you down, where would they uh, where would they do that? Are you on Are you on Twitter?
1: Yeah. You can reach me at my Twitter. My Twitter handle is P underscore M E R U V A. And you can also email me. My email address is P U N E E T H at trucks.bc. And then a detailed report on the research that we discussed today is published on our website. Our website is uh, trucks.bc.
0: Fantastic. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Panith. I really, uh, really, really appreciate your time, and uh, looking forward to having you and and the and the rest of the um, the, the trucks team on uh, in the future to talk about um, exciting, interesting uh, investments <laughs> that you guys have made in this space as well as we watch as we watch it develop. Cheers. Absolutely. Thanks
1: again for having me.